You're listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. This is issue number five, the question of theory. This seventh and final piece addresses the question, is theory dead? It features contributions by Joseph Godlewski, Jake Matatiao, John May, Ginger Nolan, Brian Norwood, Ivan Santoyo Orozco, Meredith Tenhor, and Marika Trotter. In this seventh and final piece in our issue on the question of theory, we turn to the more general question of the fate of theory, and we ask, is architectural theory dead? This might seem like a strange question to ask, given our lengthy discussion so far. Yet at the turn of the millennium, a young generation of professors and architects declared the end of theory. Nearly 20 years on, however, a different generation can now address the same question and ask why there was such a perception of theory's decline. If theory was in decline, what kind of decline was this? Was it theory per se, or just one particular definition of theoretical work? We begin with Meredith Tenhor and John May, who tackle the question of theory's apparent death by pointing to the connection between theory and curiosity. They both have some concerns about the future vitality of theory, however. John sees the current automation of mental processes impeding curiosity and preventing metaphysical questions from even arising, whereas Meredith's concerns are about the culture of overwork in architectural studio and professional practice as that which has or may kill theory. First, Meredith Tenhor. To me, the question of whether theory is dead is totally the wrong one, and we just need to think about how to make a space for theory and then how to make theory better, probably. And then maybe be honest about what we're using theory for. I also you know, tend to think in my own work that theory is a kind of ethical need as well as something that one does with one's curiosity or one reads in order to um, have channels to place one's curiosity. Um, so the theory dies, this kind of theory dies or gets very thin and underdeveloped when there are no spaces for reflection. And I find this to be true in many schools with their sort of cultures of charrette and endless competition, uh, no sleep, and of course the mounting student debt that most people have outside of it, which make them very insecure and feel as though all of their time um, must be monetized towards finding a well-paying job. Our students are under such tremendous stress from the cultures of their schools and from our culture at large, particularly in the U.S., which sends these super mixed messages about the value of architecture. So I think actually this is why unwittingly institutions like the architecture lobby who are really trying to change architects' relationship to time and pay are so vital to the future of thinking and to the future of theory because they promise fair compensation which would lead to the time people need to think theoretically. John May. As long as there's curiosity in the world, there will be theories about the world. Again, I, I suppose in my own way, I'm making the case that a certain kind of architectural theory ran its course, but I, I certainly would never make so grand a claim as to say that theory itself is dead. I mean, it seems so general that it's either so general that it's unhelpful or it's, you know, theoretically empty. But there is one sense in which I have concerns about the future vitality of anything like a theoretical approach or a philosophical outlook. But my concerns exist on a very different level, I think, than anything like um, institutional paradigms. My concerns really have much more to do 
with the automation of what are called non-mental routines, um, which is a fairly well-known phrase in machine learning and the economic studies around machine learning and AI, which would say that certain kinds of fundamental questions, ontological questions, questions about the ontology of mathematics, epistemological questions, certain kinds of questions that presented themselves in textual and orthographic media, that is to say, certain kinds of questions that existed within the labor time of reading and writing, what we're beginning to see when we look very closely at our contemporary technical systems in which something like writing has become word processing and something like reading has become scanning or screening or scrolling, what one sees when one looks very closely at the kind of mundane technical details around those complex operations is that these really fundamental questions of, again, these are metaphysical questions to some extent about reality and is reality countable? Is it quantifiable? If so, how? Basic questions, they tend to not arise within real-time technical paradigms. But when we move into certain kinds of cybernetic systems of neural networks, it's not so much that these age-old epistemological or ontological or philosophical questions are resolved, it's that they are simply eliminated. They do not arise because they have been displaced to the realm of automation. In the next part, Joseph Godlewski, Brian Norwood and Marika Trotter try to identify what the causes might be of the decline of theory. Joseph discusses how the so-called Gilded Age of theory, or boutique theoretical activity, was unable to engage with pressing environmental and technological issues. Brian and Marika both point to the responsibility of schools themselves in theory's decline. Marika looks at previous generations and at the turn that the last generation took towards history as one of the causes of theory's apparent decline. Brian suggests that the success of theory in recent years had something to do with its narrow focus and thus its intensity, and this raises questions as to whether theory can maintain its intensity when it expands to become more inclusive of many more issues, topics, places, and frameworks. Brian Norwood. Architectural theory is not dead as long as we're talking about it. It appears that a lot of people still are talking about it in some way. It makes sense to say, or it makes sense to me that we say that there's a real question of the scope of architectural theory that's been challenged. Um, that if I mistake the sort of theory that depends strongly on semiotic theory for architectural theory as a whole, then I probably could say it's architectural theories in decline or it's, it's all but dead. Joseph Godlewski. If anything did die or was seriously challenged or exhausted with a particular brand of theory, what Harry Francis Mulgrave called the Gilded Age of Theory, this kind of Baroque thinking and the far-fetched philosophical arguments that got attached to these kinds of things. Again, a, a time of tremendous energy, theoretical production, but one that's really left behind what I feel is a kind of exclusionary legacy that I, I really actively try to fight off. Marika Trotter. We had like this, this like crazy cowboy thing going on for a while in architectural discourse where a whole bunch of people just kind of got invited to be part of a club because Peter Eisenman managed to get a lot of extra money to do various things. He made that, like he made that up. He made it up. 
Um, so it was kind of this last like great moment of kind of wild old boys club patronism where people were invited to teach. They got prominent positions. They got prominent platforms. They got millions of dollars for um, funding of various events and conferences and all that stuff. They often uh, did great things with it, um, but it wasn't replicable. It was built off personal connections and it wasn't institutionalized in any meaningful way. And so it wasn't something that could continue with the next generation. So the next generation starts looking around and they realize a couple things. They're not going to be able to just do what their mentors did. And it's unlikely that they will have any kind of financial stability unless they can get a tenure track position. And even then, it's gonna be rough. So they seek refuge, I think, in tenure track scholarship, and they seek refuge in the safety of the larger academic bubble. And I, I really think it, this is what happens when you have models that aren't replicable, and you also have teachers who are not great mentors. Brian Norwood again. Theory is really hard to do, or theor doing theory is not an easy practice. And if the people that train themselves and dedicate themselves to the practice of doing theory stop taking responsibility for the large-scale questions of what is theory or move away from present tense theory to, to frame themselves as historians, then I think it seems inevitable that there's a potential for a decline in quality of theorization or a decline of theory into something easier than it actually is. So if we saw the sort of 80s, 90s moment and many people in architecture schools decided we don't want to be doing that anymore, there's been uh, on the side of people with PhDs uh, a running away uh, towards history and towards the kind of measurement of the standards of a discipline that situates itself more on the historical side. And then on the design side, people may have moved away from the kind of immediate project of someone like Peter Eisenman, maybe, but what's been framed in its place doesn't strike me as any more rigorous or having the potential to be as rigorous. So the kind of question there becomes like, who's going to take responsibility for this? And it's probably a larger question of like how architecture schools frame themselves, who runs architecture schools, what do architecture schools in general see themselves as aiming at. So theory did carry a lot of cultural capital and it's certainly changing the way that cultural capital is carried in architecture schools, but it's, it's not theory going away. I think it's just migrating into different forms than uh, what we were seeing in the 80s and 90s. The question is, yeah, who's responsible for this now? Marika Trotter again. You know what? I think we've done way too much in terms of the way that we've, the way that we've inherited architectural education. I think we've been way too heavy on the side of telling people what other people have done rather than helping them explore what they might do. And I think the effects generationally have been pretty awful because we have entire generations, not just one, probably two, that feel like they can't make a difference. They feel completely disenfranchised and disconnected and they feel overwhelmed and pre-defeated by the challenges that they face. And I think pedagogy has a lot of responsibility 
there and should should be blamed um, for that, for giving people a feeling like they don't matter and like there's nothing left for them to do and whatever they can do is going to be of no account. There's a lost generation and that lost generation roughly corresponds to the generation of my teachers. I, I was fortunate enough to get A's and Quinter and Kipnis, for example, and actually even once Laban. So like I got some of the last great generation in, but then there's the people that are now um, uh, newly tenured or finishing their tenure process um, at universities all across North America. Certainly uh, didn't do anything to help theory and did a lot to hurt it. And I guess my instinct is to blame the fathers. There was a cavalier and possibly often destructive attitude towards students on the part of that last great generation where either they wanted acolytes or they were actually tearing down potential successors. <laughs> I definitely think both of those things happened. But then also I think there was a turn away on the part of the younger generation toward the academy and away from engaging with the world in a way that I think was cowardly, short-sighted, and ultimately unproductive. In that, I think we saw some really, really bright minds in the general arena of architecture turn towards a kind of deeply academic understanding of what their role was. So for instance, people would say things like, I don't actually write architectural history. I am a historian who writes history, and the specific thing I look at is architecture, meaning that their audience is generally uh, historiography and historians rather than architects. A kind of turn away from professional schools and design schools and design thinking uh, and toward the larger university. And then also a turn uh, away from the contemporary moment and a kind of moment of cowardice, um, I would say, and a turn away from the responsibility of discourse toward practice um, and toward uh, more academic pursuits. Brian Norwood again. If we define theory as having a really limited scope, maybe what was happening in the 80s and 90s is sort of theory based on semiotics in some sense. If we limit the scope of theory, we could probably have a lot of quality or at least a lot of intensity engaged in very narrow problems. As soon as we open theory up and ask the, the, these larger questions about where it goes, we do start running into the question of how do we judge quality here? What, what sets the standards uh, for good and bad work? And I think you see that, in, at least in the PhD world, is the turning outwards to other disciplines like STS or history proper or uh, other fields that would help us frame the kind of quality of our work or help us situate our work in a way that can be judged. And I wonder where architectural theory within architecture would get that framework. And it, it's, it probably is a larger question of, of education, like of the school itself. How do architecture schools judge what it's good pedagogy and not what is the direction of the discipline and what is good thought on the direction of the discipline? That seems like it becomes a really large, difficult question quickly. But my first reaction to the question of why it was had the level of intensity it did in the 80s and 90s. Or my, my first reaction is to say, well, A, it was a select group of people, um, mostly working within one geographical area that were able to discourse with one another. 
and the kind of size and focus of that group of people that seem to care, the ones that, you know, create oppositions or assemblage, there's a, a certain tightness there that probably is not as existent now. The critique that I feel like you could also run is that, well, it worked too by just ignoring a lot of larger implications, right? Instead of actually talking or actually engaging with issues of class or race or issues of disparity and difference, you turn it into a theoretical project and you talk about it. That makes for a very closed and confined project. But as soon as that actually starts to get challenged by difference, it might fall apart a little bit when you when real difference is encountered. Joseph Godlewski again. You know, when I said that a certain kind of brand of theory died, I, I, I don't think that it completely died. Like, I think there's still remnants of like that kind of overwrought and just more of a kind of performance than, than anything else. I mean, I think that there's still a lot of that around. I just can't see it. I can't see that stuff answering to the kind of challenges that I see existing now and in the coming decades whether it be environmental or discourses around identity um, or the just kind of profound technological change. I just don't see that, that, that kind of theory like answering to those kinds of questions. Like it seems more self-satisfied. It becomes a kind of boutique activity, right? That actually isn't engaged in like actually pressing challenges that previous iterations of theoretical speculation seem much more concerned with. Honestly, I don't think it's possible to really kill theory or that, that theory can die. It's always there. It's whether, whether or not it is explicit or conscious, verbalized and practiced. I think like there's a sense that there's a transition, right, from theory to something that might be known as intelligence. I, I actually think of all, all of that, all the writing involved with that stuff is also being a theory. Again, to go back to some of the things on the checklist of what is theory, it's really kind of adapting to challenges in the discipline and changes in technology and changes in culture. And that's essentially what all of that discourse was about, was it this critical project has kind of exhausted itself um, or it hasn't met its pretty bold um, aims. The market was like correcting itself, like it had overworked itself and needed a kind of correction. Um, and what was being called out was a lot of the kind of excesses that had accrued over the years. Back to Marika. I don't think there was anything in discourse as such that merited exhaustion. I don't think we ran out of ideas. I think we ran out of people who were willing to take risks on building those ideas. Because when I look around, um, all I see are half-finished projects, um, things that should still be considered, things that haven't been considered enough, across projects that I agree with and I don't agree with. There just seems to be an incredible amount of work to be done, and it's just been kind of laying there. The reason it's been laying there is because the next generation turned away from that, and I've suggested maybe why that could be in pretty personal and vitriolic terms. But I don't think there was anything in that mode of inquiry that tended toward exhaustion. In the next and penultimate part, Ginger Nolan shares her concerns about the current generation of doctoral candidates and professors of architectural history and theory in the tenurial system of US academia. Her concern is that the archive has become a kind of unquestioned fetish. 
Ginger tries to square the duties required by the increasingly high standards of research demanded by the tenorial system and the everyday life of young professors, and concludes that a turn from history to theory may prove beneficial. Ginger Nolan. The supposed arc, according to which, like, theory rose to prominence in the university setting in the 1970s, let's say, 1970s and 80s, where it got sort of taken over, especially by um, people trained in PhD programs in architectural history theory increasingly, and then sort of suffered a demise according to the kind of reassertion of praxis and the reassertion of architectural autonomy. I don't actually see any of that as having much validity or truth. I mean, I think certainly the, the rise of architectural history theory PhDs has kind of secured a certain place for certain kinds of thought. That training certainly is in many ways, you know, it's, it's a disciplining, like it's disciplinary training. And that disciplining has a lot to do with making us responsible about what we say by reference to like archival evidence and things like that, which is a good thing in most respects. But then I think it, it constrains speculative thought. And I do think there's a need for speculative thought that is, you know, not so, so deeply tethered to archival work that is nonetheless kind of imposing on itself a, a kind of rigor and intellectual responsibility that one doesn't necessarily see in a lot of the texts that kind of pass as architectural theory, you know, today, um, which are more mystifying than they are clarifying or more mystifying than they are questioning, I should say. So I think that is a danger that the kind of disciplining of architectural historians does have certain kind of deleterious effects, even while it has also, I think, certain good effects in pedagogy. And I think, you know, the way architectural historians who are, you know, with PhDs teach is different than what they, how they might write. And I think it's where in their writing that, you know, there's a lot of constraint. Despite things like the nomenclature, like HTC or history theory, I mean, we're trained as historians by and large, right? So that is, it, it is an assumption. It is just not even questioned. Remember when I, my first year in architectural PhD program, there was this sort of thing that was hovering over us, the archive, right? And there was something about its kind of presence and it's kind of the unquestioning significance for our work, the unquestioned significance that it was, the role that it was to play in our work that um, I think had a bit of a mystifying effect. And it was never sort of, I think, questioned usually in PhD programs. And I don't find there's very much explicit dialogue about the extent to which um, architectural history theory, which it's always called, must always be coming from architectural history as opposed to kind of forms of theory that do not, um, that are not based on archival research. As architectural, people with PhDs, right, as the discipline of architecture history theory, had to assert itself as something that is not always in the service of like studio culture, that was not about writing, you know, kind of hagiographies about architects and things like that. So like, you know, struggles that happened in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. Um, that the ar historical archive and sort of aligning oneself with certain disciplinary traditions in the humanities was the clear way to do that. And it fits into university frameworks, right, of, of tenurable research and things like that. Um, so I think that was part of it, but that in doing so, it has kind of enshrined archival work in a way that, um, you know, 
it serves a good purpose. So I don't, I'm not, you know, but it also has to be questioned at times and it has to be departed from at times strategically, you know. There's a lot of assumptions about the archive as a form of authority that are unquestioned and that we also have to consider the ways in which architectural writing and research are conducted, which, you know, for, for many of us in my generation currently, like you're talking about women and men who have young children who are expected to write many peer-reviewed articles often in order just to get a job and then have to write many more to, to t get tenured in, on top of books and things like that, on top of various, all these kind of administrative and academic services they perform. So like, you know, it's no wonder that someone is going to have an inaccurate footnote or, you know, just, and there's just also questions about how one is to conduct archival research in far-flung places under those circumstances and how much of it, how thoroughly one can do it, you know. So I think these things, you know, I'm just going to say that I guess there's very, very practical kind of quotidian dimensions to kind of why we turn to the kinds of writing we do. And for me, like, I'm finding myself very frustrated at my ability in my life to do the kind of archival research I want to do or, you know, field work. So that then leads me to the kind of research and writing I can do. Meredith Tenhall concludes this episode and the issue by reiterating the importance of academic institutions and pedagogy. She warns that the decline of theory is not just about less and less people writing theoretical texts, but about less and less people reading them. Meredith Tenhall. I think that if we're actually going to bring a kind of critical rigor to our field, we need to stop thinking about cycles of fashion in relationship to theory. And I think frame it differently. One way of framing it would be to think about, you know, what are the sort of presentist conditions that we need to answer? That's one way of sort of bypassing this question of uh, dead or alive in terms of theory and, and just really trying to tune uh, practice to the urgent questions of the world, the traumatic ones right now. You know, the other way of thinking about it is to uh, try to define uh, strains of practice that are emerging and to find ways of uh, listening to emerging theories in other fields and finding consonances and relationships between them. At the same time as our discipline has been more established, you know, specifically around having PhD programs and that sort of thing, which are quite recent, there are other standards to which we might want to put ourselves in. And so I think as young academics, we're under you know, pressure to do work that can be legitimate in the eyes of the discipline, um, as well as experimental at the same time. And so my hope is that those two things don't have to be in competition with one another. But I, I really see the, the position of the students and as, as driving um, the kind of thinning of the space for theory as a primary driver. So, you know, we can write all the theory we want, we can have supportive institutions, but if nobody's reading it, nobody has the time or the space for reflection in their own practice, and our students don't have room to become theorists, then then architectural theory could could die, right? So it's, it's not so much about the intellectual traditions as it is about a kind of larger crisis in our culture that we that we need institutions and unions and things like that to fight against. I think some of those explanatory devices still feel really exciting to young students. 
um, who have not experienced the kind of long trajectory from the 60s that we have um, and who haven't had time yet to learn that history. Um, but I think that we, you know, should be looking towards people who theorize what's what's happened to the intellectual traditions of the 60s. And I, I find myself always going back to Luke Botansky and Yves Chiappello um, and thinking about their, their ideas of social critique and aesthetic critique um, of life uh, before 68, you know, becoming really, really severed after 1968. And so, you know, I do think there's a, a kind of way in which capitalism uh, has played a very strong role in this um, uh, kind of repetitive world that we find ourselves in. Um, but capitalism, you know, always seeks new grounds and legitimates things that are profit driving. And so I think some of our fatigue might have to do with actually how much the life has been sucked out of certain discourses because they've already been monetized in certain ways. So I think we have to be very attentive to that. And again, situate our work and the questions that we ask um, within the institutional spaces and the money-making spaces that we have for them. In this final piece in our fifth issue of Attention on the question of theory, we brought the conversation to a close with reflection on the fate of theory in architectural culture. Everyone agreed that it was too general and unproductive to address the fate of theory through the crude mythical narrative arc of its birth and death. Instead, they addressed a range of factors in the fate of theoretical work, ranging from theory's style, theory's social space, its pedagogical reproduction or institutionalization, the issues being addressed, and the technical and economic conditions faced by professors and students. Some argued that a certain Baroque style of theory indeed became exhausted. Others argued that exhaustion had far more to do with its social space, which was too exclusive and not well structured in a manner that could institutionalize its future. It may have been theory's exclusivity, both geographical, social and intellectual, that actually enabled the vetting and judgment of good theoretical work. And with the decline of this theoretical work, new standards of more broadly applicable judgment valued within the academy have not yet emerged. Unsupported generations have turned to the university at large and the standards of judgment of historical work in particular. Not only have young tenure-track professors turned away from theory and theory's critical relation with contemporary practice towards architectural history, but they have even turned away from the architecturalness of architectural history, seeing themselves as more properly part of a history department. In doing so, they have secured some institutional place for intellectual work in architecture, not reduced to the mandates of practice, and that might be thought of as independent and critical, but they have done so at the expense of the experimental and speculative nature of theory. Some suggested that exhaustion was internal, that theory operated by discoursing about certain topics rather than addressing their reality. Race, gender, climate change or technological change were thematized by theory but not yet theorized in their reality. To borrow an economic metaphor, one could say that these issues were handled only as theoretical commodities, 
One could say that such commodification led only to a kind of speculative bubble in need of a reality check. Deeper background conditions of technical change and economic change were also flagged as important factors in the fate of theory. Some raised concerns that the metaphysical reflection at the heart of theoretical work is profoundly threatened by the advance of technical processes. Others raised concerns that it is compressions of labour conditions and commodification of intellectual labour in our current stage of capitalism that has squeezed both the production and reception of theoretical work. Finally, it was said in numerous ways that theory depends on the institutional space for reflection and that the fate of theory today lays in the hands of those who are responsible for theoretical work, which is at present primarily schools of architecture. Those running schools need to think about how they can better institutionalize theoretical work, support generations of teachers and students to reflect and find ways to better count theoretical work within the quantified metrics of academia. You've been listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Issue 5, The Question of Theory. Issue 5 was written and directed by Joseph Bedford and was edited and produced by Ari Korati. Thanks to the Graham Foundation for generous support.